episode 163, Employers and Health Systems Partnering Up to Deliver Healthcare at Lower Costs. Today, I speak with Ross Bella, CEO of Altheus Incorporated. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. As we in the healthcare business know, employers are the ultimate payer for a significant portion of people in the United States today. And right now, employers are starting to get crushed under the weight of escalating healthcare costs. Some of these employers, say the leading 20%, have said, and I quote Twisted Sister here, am I really going to do this? (laughs) They're not going to take it anymore. Just for the record, my grandma's cousin's husband's brother is the lead guitarist for Twisted Sister, so maybe that's my excuse. Today, I speak with Ross Bella, CEO over at Altheus Inc., about what employers and providers can and maybe must be doing right now to prepare for our new reality. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Ross. Hey, Stacy. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's talk about a winning model for providers, employers, and consumers, like a way to work together that works for everybody. So I guess we should probably start at the beginning, you know, like what does a winning model need to have to earn the title? You know, what attributes? A winning model requires that the economic decision makers, the providers of care, and the patient are all aligned in what they're trying to do. In that the payer is trying to get the best value, the provider is trying to give the best service and the best care, and the person who's receiving the care is trying to have the best outcome. And anytime those, one of those three things is not in alignment, that's a bad model. If we're talking about not winning models, you know, what tends to go wrong or, or where is the system most awry? There are so many not winning models in healthcare. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's narrow that down ever so slightly as it relates to what an employer and their employees might receive from a provider and or payer? Well, let's talk about models that really aren't winning in the marketplace, but are very common. The first model, and the reason I started the company is that the payers or the self-insured employers were raising their deductibles and coinsurance and have now raised them to the point where deductibles are $5,000, and $15,000. And when the average person in the United States has less than $1,000 in savings, the first thing they do when they're told they need care is they don't go. And that's a problem. So until we figure out that model, there is going to be a problem. It may not be a problem today, but it's going to be a problem in the long term. So that's one problem. Another problem in the healthcare ecosystem that we have today is that the lack of transparency or visibility to what things cost and how the care is being delivered, which drive those costs is a problem because the person who's receiving the care has no idea what that care is going to cost. And the systems sometimes create an environment where it's nearly impossible for that patient to understand what the cost could possibly be. 
And I'll give you an example. And this happened to my chief technology officer, whose wife had been diagnosed with cancer and was told that she needed a CT scan. They went to the hospital, was given the CT scan, and ultimately was given three CT scans for a cost to him of more than $10,000. When he knew or thought there was going to be one CT scan, he knew that it was going to be about $2,500. But he didn't know he was going to get three and had no way to control the costs. So that model doesn't work either. And unfortunately, in our systems, there's not many ways to align the incentive for the payer, the patient, and the provider to make sure that everyone understands the value that they're receiving. And are you seeing that in the marketplace? I'm, I'm speaking of your, your first not winning model in that with high deductible plans, patients or you know consumers are for actually foregoing possibly necessary care. I mean, possibly unnecessary care, but possibly necessary care. We see that patients are delaying care. And anecdotally, I can tell you, because I've spoken to over 2,000 employees in the last three years, face-to-face interviews, talking about their benefit plan, listening to them talk about what's important to them. And they are definitely not, not receiving care because they're afraid of the cost. Even when their benefit plan fully covers the procedure for a physical or for a screening colonoscopy, right now there's so much confusion around what's paid and what's not. And too many people have walked in for their screening colonoscopy and somehow came out with a bill that they didn't know was going to happen and ended up having to pay four or $5,000, which they didn't have. Now, right or wrong, that word gets out into the marketplace and the rest of the employees in that company just say, forget it. I'm not going to take the risk because I can't financially afford it. Speaking from the employer point of view at this juncture, I mean, obviously, it's a problem, number one, you know, just from a how people, an employee satisfaction standpoint, if employees are running around thinking that their care is may or may not cover a colonoscopy, but then also there's downstream costs of people foregoing necessary care. So as an employer, what traditionally, you know, from a legacy standpoint has been possible to do, or if I'm an employer and I'm concerned about these things and I say to my payer, you know, and say I'm self-insured, so I'm using a payer for administrative services only, what am I able to control historically or, or how am I able to solve these problems or, or not? What most employers in our market are doing now is they're responding to the failure of the large health systems to truly manage their population health, the employer's employee population health. And they're doing that by putting in on-site clinics or hiring providers to come in on a near-site clinic basis to make sure that their employees are receiving those primary care services. And there's been study after study, and I can tell you with 80,000 employee lives on our platform, that 50% of the employees don't have or can't name their primary care provider. So the employers are saying, we are going to now take control of this and try to reduce our costs or reduce our risk for those people who are not taking care or getting care by them every opportunity to do so. And we make it cost effective and convenient for them. So you had mentioned one solution that employers are actively pursuing is to 
you know, take matters into their own hands instead of having the, the employee take it upon themselves and the risks associated with that to go find a provider and hope that this procedure is covered. They say, okay, fine, you know, we will pay the provider ourselves, you know, like we'll have an on-site clinic um, that we control or, or somebody nearby that we have a special relationship with, thereby taking some of that risk away and opening up transparency. Yeah, that's exactly correct. And is there other kind of widespread techniques that are going on right now, you know, above and beyond your platform? But are there other sort of industry trends which are taking hold right now? I think a trend that has come and is largely going away to some degree is the wellness trend in that there have been many wellness programs that were sold as a way to reduce healthcare costs, but very few of them have really ever been proven to do so. And so you have a fairly large expense for a program that doesn't reduce costs, yet it may improve the culture of care within an organization, and there may be value for that. But in a true cost reduction or even a health risk reduction of that population, we are just not seeing the value in programs like that, uh, specifically on the economic side. Well, I guess you got to try it out. <laughs> but I've I've certainly heard the same thing that that wellness programs may help an employer achieve other goals, but it's probably not going to have an economic impact on healthcare costs. Well, not in and of itself. Now, I'm not against wellness programs at all. I'm a proponent of wellness programs, but I think what failed is that they were sold as this single solution that's going to reduce healthcare costs, and there is no one single solution. There has to be a 360-degree support solution for the employee. And 12 to 15% of the employees are driving 80% of the costs. And when I speak to employers and groups about managing their healthcare costs, I'll always ask the people who are wearing a Fitbit to raise their hand, and nearly 100% of them are the fittest people in the room. So we've got the in-clinic that employers are working, that are, you know, installing. I don't know what the correct <laughs> word is. Probably not installing, right. but we'll leave it at that. Using, Implementing, yeah. maybe? Yeah, good. Buying, sure. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, then we've got the kind of wellness trend, which is I'm, I'm putting a strike through across that one. You know, are there other ways that employers, you know, or is this not a big deal yet? You know what I mean? Like maybe employers are thinking to themselves, ah, well, you know, not, not such a huge, huge problem. Like, have we reached an inflection point or, you know, is there one oh, on the horizon? We have absolutely reached an inflection point, but it's the inflection where the employers are saying, I am mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore. And you see this in very disruptive techniques, such as reference-based reimbursement, where there are groups, uh, you interviewed Mike Dendy from AMPS not too long ago. And AMPS is one of the groups that works with employers to do reference-based reimbursement and negotiate the cost of procedures after the procedure to a, a reasonable price based on Medicare as the reference. So they may pay claims at 110 or 140 or 170% of Medicare, which is typically 30 to 40 to 70 percent below what that employer would have paid through their normal PPO. So that is a very disruptive 
activity in the marketplace. It doesn't work in every market, but in the markets it works, it's phenomenal. The other thing that we see are employers going to directly to providers and negotiating direct contracts. And if they're not doing it themselves, they're using direct contract aggregators. And there are a few companies out there that we work with. There's one here called Access HealthNet. There's PriceMDs. There's eSurgeries. There are a number of them around the country that identify those providers who are willing to give a fixed bundled price for a procedure. And then they work directly with the employers or TPAs to offer those fixed prices to the employer payers. So that's definitely happening. And then the on-site clinic piece is being supplemented by direct contracts or relationships with chiropractors or physical therapy or lab services providers to really rein in all those additional costs that are controllable. The leading employers are the ones who've taken an active control of their healthcare costs by identifying these opportunities and putting them in place where they make sense. And if you were going to look at a bell curve of employers, like how many have reached this point? You know what I mean? Is it like the top of the bell curve or are we still on the leading edge or where are we? We're on the leading edge and that's probably the top 20% of the employers. I work in the mid-market, so my client base ranges from 4,000 employees and below. I think my average client size is about 800 employees, but I have clients with as few as 26 employees. The challenge is that if you're a large employer, you have a lot of negotiating power and can make a health system pay attention when you are saying, I'm only going to use the Cleveland Clinic for my heart procedures or something like that. Small employers don't have that option. And because many of them are landlocked in an environment where there's one health system in the community or within a reasonable driving distance, there's not much that they can do. So they previously, they haven't been able to steer patients and the economic incentives that have been there for the patients to actually go to value haven't been sufficient enough. But in the last three years when we've seen deductibles rise from $1,000 to more than $5,000. Now we're seeing those same employers who normally told me three years ago, uh, we can't get our people to drive across town to get a lower cost colonoscopy. These same employees are driving two and three and four hours for a colonoscopy because they're going to save themselves a few thousand dollars and their employer multiple thousands of dollars. So I guess that we keep talking about consumer-directed healthcare. That's a choice that a consumer can make. You know, they can either stay extremely local and pay a couple grand more, or they can drive a little bit and save the money, you know, up to you. Right. That's correct. Let's talk about Alethius. So just say I'm an employer of midsize, right in the sweet spot of your platform, and, and I walk in the door, sign the contract. Walk me through the steps that are going to happen in order for you to help me realize a winning model. The first thing we do is to take an employer's data, their historical medical and prescription claims data, and run a report that creates what we call a virtual narrow network, meaning that we can identify those centers of value within the PPO that are delivering care at a much higher value than others. And we can calculate out very accurately 
how much money those employers are leaving on the table by not steering within their PPO network. We then look at the ability to get direct contracts or use a direct contract aggregator in that particular market and overlay that to add further potential value. And then we can show how much money they've left on the table. And then lastly, we can run the population health analytics to see if any of these strategies will reduce their catastrophic claims or those patients who have hit the spec and egg for their stop loss and how much those savings could be. So all those three things come together for a story that says, here's where your risk is, here's where your opportunities lie, and here are some potential programs or strategies to help you manage that. And we do that for a few dollars per employee per month. And frankly, for most of my employer clients, if I can steer a couple MRIs or a couple colonoscopies or a couple orthopedic procedures, it more than makes up for the cost of our services. You've got the virtual network. And basically what you're doing there is it's almost like you're providing your own provider directory. You know, like if you need X service, then here's your top three choices in the area. Correct. Is this primarily focused because you said high value providers? Does that mean low cost providers or is there some correlation to quality scores that you're factoring in? Quality is an interesting component of many of the discussions around healthcare. We're analyzing more than 340 million claim records, and including all the CMS data, I count that separately, but we're trying to get quality scoring at that level, and I'm finding it to be nearly impossible. And when I look at how most of the groups are using the CMS scores to indicate quality, they're using metrics that are really not applicable for the procedures that most people are shopping for. I will give you an example. If one of these groups says this location has a higher readmit rate than another location. So therefore, if you have your knee ACL procedure at that location, there's a higher chance of readmission. But it, that ignores the fact that the readmission metrics that CMS is looking at are solely related to readmits around heart attacks, COPD, heart failure, pneumonia, stroke, cabbage surgery, total hip and knee replacement, and a general all-hospital-wide readmits. So you cast this in one way very narrow net of what they're measuring for metric and then suggesting that it applies across every disease state. And that's just simply not, not accurate. So it's directional, but it's not definitive. And when people are saying definitively, this place is a higher quality place, I, I, I really question that. How are you doing it, or are you just pretty much going by cost? We do both, actually. We use that directional information, but we also have our own algorithms. So we're looking at things like at the physician level, has the physician performed this procedure a certain number of times in the last year, and relative to their peers, are they performing it more or less often? And then we look at things like their board certification, if there are sanctions against them, or things like that, and we can then assume that that provider is generally more capable of having a better outcome than someone who we have no information about. So we combine the cost with that information. 
And when we've done our, our analytics and compared them to those groups like Castle Connolly or Best Doctors or some of the others that do have, I think, respected rating systems, uh, we have an 85% match. So we think we're as good as anyone else. And there are, are many groups that have looked at these and said there's very little correlation between one and another, meaning that you could be a highly ranked doctor in one rating system and be lower ranked on another, and no one understands why. And how does your quality scores compare to cost? Because in most markets, you'd expect them to be very proportionately aligned. You know, the higher the quality, the higher the cost. But what I have often heard is that because the most experienced facilities are so efficient and because they do so many that often that's not the case in healthcare. Has that been your experience or? <laughs> the more I know about healthcare, the, the less I know about pounding the table and saying, this is the way it should be. And I will give you an example as to why I, I struggle with that. Intuitively, I know that to be true. So that those providers who are more efficient can have a lower cost. That doesn't mean they do. So I know some very efficient hospitals with very good providers that still have high costs because their cost structure is so out of whack with the market. But on a competitive basis, you could have that same procedure done at a surgery center with a very efficient physician in a very efficient facility and get a much lower cost. So both providers are efficient and very good, but it's the cost structure themselves that is, is changing the metric on it. So if I'm steering someone, I'm going to steer them to the metric that is truly a lower cost based on what we believe the quality to be, which is why we like to use providers who are giving a fixed bundle price, because what they're doing is they're taking on the liability of a readmit or an infection or a redo of the procedure. And the groups that are doing this typically do not allow all their providers to participate in every procedure. If they're offering a shoulder rotator cuff procedure at some fixed price, they typically have one or two doctors in their practice that do those. Nearly every one of the doctors in the practice could do them, but they're only allowing those doctors who specialize in those procedures to do them. And therefore, we believe that we are going to get a higher quality outcome than if someone went at random to another provider who could do the procedure but may not do as many. Okay, so we've gotten to the point where you have, let's just say, done the analysis. You've figured out what the virtual network is because you've compared the cost, you've compared the quality, you've gone through the math and said, wow, employer, you know, if you steer employees to these particular high value providers when they need, you know, the standard set of any one of these procedures, how do you actually go about that? Say I'm one of the employees and all of a sudden I realize I need some help with my knee or, or something. Like, how do I know where to go? Well, there's a little bit of magic that happens before that. And we work very closely with the brokers and the leaders in the HR departments to design an incentive-based plan design that encourages the employee to give us a call when they need a procedure. 
If you don't have that, you're not going to have much engagement in the program. I do have clients that have a very unique culture where if the CEO says we should do this, that's what they do. Sargento Foods in Sheboygan, Wisconsin is a phenomenal culture of quality. They are all in alignment with how to manage costs. And I have 20 to 30% engagement in our platform without any incentives. It's phenomenal. The vast majority of my clients have incentive-based plan designs where if the employee uses a high-value provider, they're going to receive some type of incentive in terms of a direct cash incentive that goes into their paycheck with taxes removed or some plan design that encourages them to do so uh, that gives them a financial benefit. So that's the first thing that happens. Once we have that in place, then the, we start the communication program in conjunction with the HR group and educate the employees about the importance of calling us, when to call us, how to avoid getting trapped in the big health system, um, you know, anti-leakage programs, as they call it, <laughs> and to reach out to us and say, I was just told that I needed a CT scan of my foot. Um, what are some of my options? And we are a provider-friendly organization so that we're always having the employee make the decision but giving them options and just having them understand their care. Because it isn't for me or my company to decide what value is. So if the employee says, I want to use my doctor and pay this amount of money, that's fine. But we want to educate them as to their plan design, what they're going to have to pay out of their pocket when they arrive at that doctor's office. And ultimately, if there are quality data about that doctor that they should know about, we'll share that. So now they can make those decisions. And the employer likes it because they're keeping people within the network. We want to keep people within the network too. Giving their employees the option of going wherever they want so it's still a broad network mentality and they're not limiting choices. And nor are they taking the liability of saying, we're only going to cover the procedure if you go to this location. They're giving them those options. And then third, the employee is hearing all these things about how they can save money and make a value-based decision, and it's up to them. And every employee will tell you that they felt good about making the decision. They believe more in their care, and that's when we get rave reviews when they go to the doctor that they chose and have a great outcome. If I say I'm a provider organization, what's maybe the top three to five things that I need to be planning for or implementing or doing to get ready for an employer who's coming or, or maybe to optimize the relationship? The first thing they need to do is to understand their cost structure. Most of the health systems don't understand their cost structure and, and have no idea what activity-based costing is. So they're learning quickly how to do that. Once they have that, then they have to convince their providers that working together in this environment will make sense and that it is necessary, economically necessary, in order to compete in the marketplace. Now, if you have a geography where there's one health system, there's no incentive for them to do that. But if you have two or more health systems, one of them certainly is going to move down this path. And I'm warning those health systems now who have a close competitor, one of you two are thinking about this and you're just waiting for the other to make a move 
And I'm telling you to make the first move because it will be received very well in the marketplace. So once you have that, you've, you know your costs, you've got your provider groups on board to say this makes sense. Then it's aligning the incentives within the providers themselves to participate in the program. That means that those providers who are doing these fixed bundle prices are really taking on the risk of those patients having a, a readmission or a redo or something. Because for most bundles, there's a warranty that's allowed. And that means that anyone who comes back within typically 90 days receives those additional services at no additional cost. So that's the, the second thing. You have the, you get the providers who are willing to do this and participate. And the last thing, I think, is to design the contract with the employer so that the providers themselves are covered for, for those black swan events that we know could happen. Uh, despite the best provider doing the work, sometimes things happen that no one can prepare for. It's not the fault of the surgeon. It's not the fault of the facility. It just happens. When those people fall out of the bundle, we say, that there is a reasonable provision for the coverage of costs that the provider and the employer agree upon. And that could be usual and customary at that point. It could be some you know, discount off the list price that's typical there. It could be some multiplier of Medicare or capped at a certain amount. There's many ways to structure that. But the providers should not go naked on trying to jump into the bundle. But they should be able to go into a bundle confident that they can deliver the service at a value to the employer, at a profit to their organization, and at as little risk as possible for the very small number of times when things go wrong. And this will be a business imperative as more and more employers jump on this bandwagon. So it's kind of like the health system who with the most contracts is probably going to be in the best position. That's why that's the incentive here. I think the health system that does this and markets it properly is going to take the quality position in the marketplace. No matter what people say about the quality of their doctors, there's nothing that indicates quality more than the willingness to take on the liability of risk. And if I'm a health system and I'm competing against maybe a much bigger health system, I need a place in the market that's better than we have smiling, happy doctors too, which unfortunately is what you typically see on billboards driving up any highway in the United States. And trying to determine where I should have my child or something is not dependent upon the smiling face on the billboard. There are going to be very much quality statistics or cost statistics that are going to drive that decision more and more. And if they can get ahead of that, that will give them more market share against their competitor. Where can people learn more about Aletheus if they are so inclined? They can go to aletheus.com, that's A-L-I-T-H-I-A-S.com, or email me at ross at aletheus.com, or follow me on Twitter at Ross Biella. It's been so great to speak with you today, Ross. Thank you, Stacy. I very much enjoyed it. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of 
all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.